All right. Good evening, New Creation Church. I am really excited. I don't know if I've ever been this excited to share a message. I don't share a ton of messages. That's first reason. But also because I'm, I'm just really excited. So I need to pray so this comes out clearly. So just bear with me. Father God, I thank you so much. Uh, what an honor to be up here on the stage at this podium in this church with these people whether they're tuning in by live stream or whether in, their, in this building. Father God, I just ask that you would be seen today, that you would be known, that my words, even where I mess up and I say the wrong thing, I may stumble over myself, that you would be heard, that I would not be seen, Father, but that you would be seen and known through your word and your testimony. Father God, I thank you that we would leave this place transformed, Father God. I thank you for good soil that the seed would fall on tonight. I thank you for each person that hears, Father God, that they will receive the maximum yield on the seed that was sown in their heart, Father God, and we would not return the same, but we would leave wherever we're going from hearing this message better. Father God, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I was very honored before I knew this whole coronavirus thing was going to affect us in this way. And before Pastor Mark went to his conference, he asked Pastor Zane, Pastor Jonathan, and I into his office. I'm like, what was the context? We didn't get any context. Always a little scary. Pastor Mark, if you're watching, it is a little scary. But we get into that office, and he, he ends up telling us that Pastor Zane's going to teach Sunday morning, uh, Pastor Jonathan's going to do offering, and Sunday night, I get to teach. Now, you see, it's Pastor Jonathan, Pastor Zane. It's just John P. I'm this 26-year-old, and I go, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm extremely honored to be here right now. And I see it that way. I thank Pastor Mark. It, it's almost a little overwhelming, and it does, it's a sense of awe being up here. <clears throat> if you haven't been up here... You wouldn't know what I'm saying, but I can tell you it's awe-inspiring. So I am very excited. And he looked at me and he said, what's your best message? <clears throat> and I mean, that's a hard question to answer. What's your best message? I said, you know what? Give me a little time. I'll get back with you. And Pastor Jonathan immediately chirped up with, what about this? And I want to tell you, I'm so thankful for having a friend and even more than a friend, a leader who knows your best and will draw your best out of you. And the message that I'm going to share with you tonight, I've shared in Nepal I've shared in Guatemala, I've shared to youth, I've shared to young adults. I share it all the time because truly it has changed my life. And it goes perfectly with what Pastor Zane was teaching this morning about potential. And I am very excited about what the church is about to do. Pastor Mark has been talking about the place that we're going. You can't come here and not hear about breakthrough. But even more than Pastor Mark prophetesses have come into this church, if you've been paying attention, and declared things about what this church is to do. <clears throat> Jen Tringale, she came and she said that we would be like the tribe of Naphtali who sent 10,000 young captains, and we would be like a military base that sends leaders and people come in to be trained as leaders. And then Patsy Caminetti came, and she said that we would be like a tree that sends its roots deep down into the soil and breaks into areas of the community that we have never broken into, that have never been broken into, and we would send our limbs far out and bear fruit in big places. So first off, that's really exciting. Thank you. I've got a little phlegm in my throat. Let me get that real quick. It's really exciting. <clears throat> but it's also, it's also a little concerning because if you know anything, when God sends a prophet... It's usually because we're not stepping up into that potential that we're being called to step into. And we've been hearing about for a long time going into a spot of breakthrough. And I feel like this is the perfect time to step into a breakthrough moment and to be the church. And that's what I want to share on. Because God has called us to influence. 
And this is one of the things that was revealed inside of me that caused me to live a life of purpose, of meaning, and of influence. And it starts with this guy named Edward Lorenz. Have you ever heard of Edward Lorenz? We have a picture of him. Here's Edward Lorenz. He was an MIT professor. And in 1963, he had a doctoral thesis that he presented to the New York Academy of Sciences. And when he presented it to him, they laughed him out of the building. And this was his thesis. His thesis was that a butterfly could flap its wings in one part of the world and move small molecules of air that would move bigger molecules of air that would move bigger molecules of air that could have the potential of creating a hurricane on a completely different part of the earth. And they laughed him out and said, are you kidding me? That's crazy, because it was crazy. And for 40 years, it was just a topic of science fiction, and people laughed about it, people joked about it, people made fun of it. But physicists in the 90s started studying it. And they found out that Mr. Lorenz, Professor Lorenz, was actually right. And he wasn't just right with butterflies. He was right with everything that has matter. When anything that has matter moves, it affects the world around it, and it doesn't just happen some of the time. It happens all the time, even with people. And they actually elevated his theory to the status of law on the same level as the law of gravity. It's called the law of sensitive dependence upon initial condition. But we call it the butterfly effect. And I remember thinking when I read that, that, wow, a butterfly can do that? But then I thought of Genesis 126, where it said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And I thought, man, if a butterfly could cause a hurricane... And God made butterflies, he made the sand, he made the light, and said, hey, that's good. But then he got to us, and he said, we are very good. And he said, you're not only good, you're like me. And if a butterfly, come on, if a butterfly could flap its wings and cause that kind of effect in the earth, what could a son and daughter of God do? John 1.16 says this, of his fullness we have all received, his fullness, grace for grace, what could sons and daughters of God, filled with the grace of God and the fullness of God, fulfill on this earth if, in fact, the butterfly effect is true and we know by science proving it, it is true today? You know, it's amazing. We talk about a butterfly and the transformation that it has from a, um, come on, help me, caterpillar. caterpillar to a butterfly and metamorphosis and the renewing of our mind and how amazing that is. But I'm here to tell you, as I was just Studying for today, God told me, as amazing as that is, it's nothing compared to a sinner getting born again and then grasping their potential, like Pastor Zane was saying, and actually stepping into it because all of creation is waiting for it. Even the butterflies are waiting for Christians to step into what God has for them. So I remember, I'm so thankful for having godly parents. If you're a godly parent, keep the course. Um, I was in my parents' house, and my mom had this book. It's called The Butterfly Effect, and a lot of what I'm sharing is from that book by Andy Andrews. And I was sitting down, and she just walked over and handed me the book and said, hey, start reading this. And I sat down. My parents had this beautiful view of Sopris, and I read through this book, and I started crying 
because of the testimonies and the stories within this book of people that had a huge impact on the earth. And Pastor Zane said he loves pictures. Pictures inspire him to bring it about. I love that, but I'm a story guy. When I hear stories of people actually doing the word of God and acting it out, it inspires me. I'm going to share some stories with you today. Have you ever heard of Norman Borlaug? Norman Borlaug was a Nobel Peace Prize winner for this. He hybridized corn and wheat seed to live in arid climates. You're like, wow, what a big deal. A little corn seed for dry climate. They say that one invention has saved two plus billion lives across the earth and growing. Like, wow, that's amazing. But was it really Norman Borlaug? Or was it Henry Wallace? Who's Henry Wallace? Henry Wallace was the first vice president of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. See, he served four terms and Truman was his vice president, but his first ever vice president just for one term was Henry Wallace. And Henry Wallace commissioned this little station in Mexico out in the desert and sent Norman Borlaug to that destination. And he gave him one job, take, figure out how to get this corn seed in so we can grow it in dry climates. The world needs it. So Norman Borlaug gets the credit, but Henry Wallace was the one who commissioned it. So maybe it was Henry Wallace that saved two billion lives. Or was it George Washington Carver? You remember George Washington Carver, the peanut guy? Sweet potato guy? Well, when George Washington Carver was a college student at Iowa State University, he had a dairy science professor. And that dairy science professor had a six-year-old boy. And that dairy science professor just loved George Washington Carver. And on the weekends, he would let his six-year-old boy hang out with George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver was his babysitter. And he would go out and he would take him on botanical expeditions. And he would show him when you put seed into the ground and it grows up and the effect it can have on people's lives. And we look at George Washington Carver, you know, he flaps his butterfly wing and he affects all the world with peanuts. And then he flaps his butterfly wing and affects all the world with sweet potatoes. Then he just goes and babysits a six-year-old boy and flaps his wing and saves two billion lives. There's purpose to our todays. Or was it Moses, though? Not Moses from the Bible. No, Moses, the farmer in Missouri. See, Moses lived in a slave state, and he was a slave owner. It's something that isn't real great about Moses, uh, but it doesn't diminish from his story. I'm not saying slavery is right, and he had slaves, and he was in the Civil War, and he had slaves on his farm, and he was in a tough spot because though he had slaves, he treated them really well, so the South didn't like him, but he still had slaves, so the North didn't like him. But he was treating his slaves so well that this group of terror- terrorizing raiders called the Quantrill's Raiders, they were the Bushwhackers, they were actually the group that Jesse James rode with. They didn't like how he treated his slaves well, and they came into his farm, burned down his barn, killed all of his animals shot people, and stole Mary Washington and her baby. Well, Moses' wife, Susan Carver, loved Mary Washington. They were best friends. She said, Moses, you got to find Mary. you got to find George. you got to find him. Go. And he's like, honey, I don't have anything left. She's like, we got to find him. we got to find him. So they sent messages out all over, all over. Two days later, they got a hold of the Quantrill's Raiders, and they said, you got to meet me four hours north in Kansas in the middle of the night. It's in January. We'll meet you there. So he only had one horse. It was a real nice horse. That's all he had left. That was all that wasn't destroyed. And he rode north to Kansas, and he showed up in Kansas in the middle of the night in January, and these men ride in on horses with torches, and they have flower sacks with holes cut in their eyes. 
And he's standing there with his only possession, his one black horse that he's willing to give up for whatever they're bringing him. And they toss him a burlap sack. And he catches it. They take his horse and he gets down. He opens the burlap sack and there's this naked, almost dead, black baby boy that has whooping cough. And it's George Washington. He picks him up. He opens his jacket. He doesn't even have a horse to ride home. Puts the baby in his jacket. Starts walking. And he's having a real conversation with God in this time. He realizes he's in a slave state. He realizes that the Civil War probably isn't going that well. He realizes that he gave his one possession for something that most people in that area wouldn't value. He didn't even know if that baby was going to live. He realized that he needed to make changes in his life. Really, he was in the in-between spot of, should I do right? Should I do wrong? And on that way home, he decided that this wasn't just going to be his slave boy. This is now his son. He has no mother. And I'm going to raise him as a son. And I'm going to teach him to honor his mother, even though she's dead. He's going to be one of my own. He walked all night and even into the next day. And he showed up to Susan. He sat George on the table and said, this is now George Washington Carver, a farmer in Missouri, flapped his wings, saved two billion lives. We go, wow. Now you go, John, that's great, but maybe it's an anomaly, John. Hey, I get it. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That's in the Bible. I've got one more story for you. It's by a man called... Joshua Chamberlain. Maybe some of you heard of Joshua Chamberlain. Here he is. He was a 34-year-old school teacher, and uh, this year was 1862. It was July 2nd. It was really hot, and he wasn't a school teacher in this moment. He was a colonel in the Union Army, and he was on the far left side of a line of 80,000 men that went over hills through farms, and that day, he stood on Little Round Top. And the colonel came up to him, another a higher ranking colonel came up to him and said, you have one job today for your men. You don't let anyone through you. If the South gets through you here, they gain the high ground, 80,000 men will die if they get through you today. He says, wow. Started to feel the weight of that. It's 2.30 in the afternoon. The 15th and 47th Alabama Regiment start hiking up Little Round Top and he pushes them down. Earlier that day, they built a thigh-high wall, just trying to prep, get a little bit of separation, raise a little bit of a standard against the enemy. They pushed them down the first time. They come right back with a second wave, pushes them down. Third wave, pushes them down. On the fourth wave, Joshua Chamberlain's out in front of his men, and he's leading, and he suddenly got smacked dead on, and he hits the ground, and he's laying there, and he's rolling over. His heart's beating, his testosterone's going. He's trying to find where he's bleeding, and he realizes that he's been hit directly in his belt buckle, and he's fine. Gets back up and pushes him down a fourth time. And he said after that fourth wave, he felt really bad for his men because he was a professor of rhetoric. He knew nothing about military. He just went to the recruiter and said, hey, there's a war. People are telling me to move to Europe because I'm a really good professor. I speak 10 languages, but I feel led to help my country. And they said, great, we'll make you a colonel. He's like, oh, man. So he said all his men, he, all he really had was he was really stubborn. And he said deep within himself, he had a big inability to do nothing. He would always take action. And he realized that he might die that day. He said, that was a very real option, obviously. But I determined within myself this one thing. I would not die with a bullet hole in my back. See, he was a believer. He would carry a picture of his wife in his jacket and a Bible in his jacket. 
He said, I would be at least like the Apostle Paul who said, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark of the high calling. Pushed him down a fourth time. Guess what the South does? It comes up a fifth time. This time they break through the wall. And this, they don't have long-range firearms back then. They have, you know, gunpowder pounding in. They're breaking through the wall, and they're punching each other. They're throwing rocks at people. They're stabbing each other. They're trying. You can't see the gun smokes everywhere. Really drains their morale. But they, again, for a fifth time, push them down the hill. See, Joshua Chamberlain in his 20th in Maine, they started six months earlier in Bangor, Maine, with 1,000 people. They started that day at Gettysburg with 300. After five waves, they were down to 80 men. Still with the same charge that they had that morning. Don't let anyone through you. You can't let anyone through you. Five waves have come. He's standing there. He's wondering what to do. Some of his higher-ranking people come up to him and says, Joshua, what's going on? And he goes, I don't know, but this is what we need to do. We need to pick up ammunition from the dead and wounded because we're grounding low. He said, sir, we did that last time. Some guys only have one or two rounds, and we don't have any more coming. Now listen to this, parents. It was a 12-year-old boy that would travel with them. They didn't have drones. That 12-year-old boy was the lookout. He would climb trees, and he would look down to the hill, and he looks down at the hill, and he sees the 15th and 47th Alabama, but this time he sees a Texas regiment walking over to the 15th and 47th in Alabama. He said, sir, they're gathering again, and there's more this time. Joshua's like, oh, what am I, I going to do? And his high-ranking officials come up to him and say, Sir, it's time to retreat. He said, we will not retreat. He said, sir, what are we going to do? We don't have any ammunition. And the boy shouts out, they're coming up the hill. They're coming up the hill. And here come the rebel soldiers. They're coming up the hill. They got their gray uniforms on. They got their high-pitched pitched yell to scream, the rebel yell. And they're screaming. They're hiding behind. They're shooting. And Joshua's just sitting there. And I'm sure everything seemed really fast. And I'm sure everything seemed really slow. And he stood there. And his brothers are there. And they're yelling, Joshua, do something. Two of his brothers were also with him, all three brothers. And he went to one of his older brothers and said, hey, you tell little brother, keep his head down. This could be a very bad day for mom. Joshua, do something. And suddenly, in the silence, and as you hear the screams coming, he goes, fix bayonets. Fix bayonets. He's like, all right, execute a great right wheel of the entire regiment. Swing from the left. Go now. And there was a very young flag bearer who was not new to war either, just a guy. And he leans over to one of the battle-hardened guys and said, what is the great right wheel of the entire regiment? He said, he's saying to charge the enemy. And at that moment, Joshua Chamberlain jumps over the wall, points his bayonet, and runs down the hill. And his men jump over the wall and follow him. And the southern soldiers were so shocked. Something amazing must have happened. These northern soldiers that were down to 80 men and almost out of all ammunition must have been reinforced. They must have something up their sleeve. And many of the soldiers on this confederacy dropped their weapons where they were and ran down the hill. And within five minutes, 80 of Joshua Chamberlain's men had captured 400 of the confederate soldiers. And he had his knife on the leader of the confederate army at the bottom of the hill. Wow, what an amazing story. But when we study history, history historians said, if Joshua Chamberlain, that guy right there on our screen, just like you and me, that school teacher, that professor who didn't know much, if he wouldn't have made that move, the Union would have lost the Battle of Gettysburg. And if you study the Civil War, we believe that if the Union would have lost Gettysburg, we would have lost the war. So you think, if we would have lost the war, we would have had two countries here, you know? We'd have to cross the border somewhere around Missouri go and there'd still be slaves, but that's not really what historians think would happen. They think we would have been divided up into nine and 13 different colonies. We would have multiplied into all these different countries. So fast forward a little bit. Fast forward to the 1940s. 
late 1930s, when Hitler's moving from one direction and the Japanese are moving from another direction. And they can just go, and they're running roughshod over the earth. There wouldn't have been a country populous enough or large enough to defeat them. One 34-year-old school teacher took a stand that still is affecting us today. A believer took a stand July 2nd, 1862, that is still affecting and influencing us today. We're talking about our God-given potential. Pastor Zane said today, we need to cultivate our potential. That's just what I'm doing. I'm stirring up hope in your heart. And as I read these stories, I did, I, start, I started to weep. And I noticed that there were four things in Joshua Chamberlain's story that we need to do if we want to flap our rings and have a big impact on the earth. And the first thing that I noticed in Joshua Chamberlain's life was this. It's okay to be uncomfortable. He was extremely uncomfortable. He was just a school teacher. He was just a professor of rhetoric. But he just knew he was going to do something. Let me just ask you some questions. Was Moses comfortable leaving Egypt for the wilderness? Was Moses comfortable being a shepherd? Was Moses comfortable going back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh? Was Jesus comfortable going to the cross? Was Ananias comfortable going to Paul? Was Paul comfortable going to the Gentiles? The Bible is full of people who were not comfortable, but were committed. I'm trying to think of uh, some times when I, I knew I overcame uncomfortability. And one of the times was growing in my relationship with the Lord and realizing I need to share my faith with others. I need to say things to people. I need to be bold. I need to get out of my comfort zone. So we had a class here at the church, and I took the class, and the leader of the class said, you know, John, after, later this afternoon, you should go on the streets and share the gospel. So I got another youth, and we, we started walking around, and it was near the end of the session of me going out, and it was at the Kaleidoscope's intersection there, and there was this lady with her dog, and it's like, I'm going to share the gospel with her. Okay, I'm going to share the gospel with her. So I start talking to her, and she's just giving me this hostility back. And about 10 minutes later, she's like, you know what? I need this. I need this. She got saved. I didn't think much of it. The evangelism leader at the time ran back into her, and she said, you know, when those two boys came up and talked to me, I was planning my suicide for that day. It's amazing what's on the other side of our uncomfortability. So here's the deal. God promises us peace. He doesn't promise us comfort. Comfort of the spirit, but that produces peace. Peace is the goal. Think about it. Armor of God. We're in a battle. Armor of God. It's the shoes. Why does God give us peace? Because comfortability makes you lazy. It makes you sit on a beanbag eating Cheetos. But peace always promotes movement and advancement. That's why he gave us the shoes of peace. John 14, 27 says this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you know that Jesus gave us peace before he gave us the Great Commission? Because he knew we would need peace to perform it. You ever heard of King Og? So we're talking about the in-between, and we're using a lot of examples of the children of Israel going from Egypt, what is a type of their past in the world, and going to the promised land. And on their way to the promised land, they had to go through different areas, and they went through Bashan. And in Bashan, there was this big bad dude named King Og, and the Israelites all knew about him. And let's read about it. It's in Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 3 and verse 11. It says, then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. 
And the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. Hold on verse 11 for a second. Okay, interesting story. Look at what happens in verse 11. Go ahead and throw it up on the screen, Caden. For only Og, king of Bashan, was of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabah of the people of Amnon? Nine cubits is its length, four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. It's interesting. It, just, it doesn't talk about anything other than, him, other than his bed. And it says he was the last of the giants. And if shoes represent peace, if anything represents comfortability, I would say it's a bed. And I just see these Israelites getting so close to the promised land and getting there. And God says, there's one big bad giant left. And you haven't conquered him yet. And he's really old. And guess what it is? It's comfortability. And I'm just, I can feel it. I can sense it. That the thing that's really holding a lot of us back from entering into this new spot is our comfortability. It's our indifference that's keeping us from being different. And God is telling us, do not fear him. I'm giving him into your hands. So if 2020, if we're going to conquer anything, in 2020, if we're conquering anything, let it be the giant of comfortability. So the first thing I noticed was he wasn't comfortable. Second thing I noticed is this. There will be opposition. First thing, he understood he was in a battle but what was Joshua Chamberlain's response when he understood there was opposition? First thing he did was he built that wall. And it made me think of the verse in Isaiah that says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will raise a standard against him. The enemy will always attack, but the Spirit of God during that attack will help you raise a standard. I'll give you a real quick example. I've been a little distracted. There's this thing called the coronavirus going around. You heard but the Holy Spirit just spoke to me like this. He said, John, you're thinking about it way too much. You're going without every 30 minutes, you're thinking, if not more, about this coronavirus. And I want every time that you think about this coronavirus for you to quote and meditate on a healing scripture. See, the enemy is trying to overcome us with a flood of a virus, and God's at the same time building us health and healing inside of us. So every time that comes, we can say things like Psalm 91, no evil shall befall you, no plague come near your dwelling. Psalm 107.20, he sent his word and healed them. 3 John 1.2, beloved, I pray that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. We can build a standard against the enemy. If you're in fear about the stock market and what it's doing, build a standard of provision for your life. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Psalm 37.25, I was once young and now I am old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor the barren lacking for bread. The blessing of the Lord adds, wait, blessing of the Lord makes one prosperous and adds no sorrow with it. Amen? Amen. We're building a standard. There's always, the Holy Spirit's always moving and advancing against the enemy and building something that's stronger than what the enemy's doing against us. And I want to tell you this tonight. Your faith can handle it. Your faith can handle it. If you have been blessed enough to go to our Bible school, you learned about the shield of faith. Again, we learned about the shoes of peace. We talked about that tonight. But we also learned about the shield of faith. 
That is for the fiery darts of the enemy. And I love how Pastor Mark talked about it. He said, so many people have their faith up and they're quoting, they're doing things. And suddenly a fiery dart hits them and it's like, oh, ah, it's hit my faith. Exactly. That's why you have a shield. But how many times do we look at these moments where we go, that just shook my faith. It's not a bad thing. That's why your faith is there. It's going to come out more purified. It's the one thing that's protecting your life is your faith. In the battle, I'm telling you, drop a lot of things. Drop your comfortability. Drop your sin. Drop your weight that so easily besets you. But whatever you do, do not drop your faith because it's the only thing that's preserving you in the time of opposition. Your faith can handle it. The third thing I noticed about Joshua Chamberlain is that when he got hit in the belt buckle, he got hit right square in the belt buckle. He fell down, shook him up. He got up and he pushed the enemy down. So the third point is this, never stay down. Get up. Proverbs 24, 16. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, a righteous man may fall seven times, but the wicked shall fall by destruction. Come on, David had an affair and then killed someone. Peter denied Jesus. Paul killed people. What is your mess up? I'll talk about my mess ups. I'll be honest, one of the biggest uncomfortable situations I've ever been in my life is working here at New Creation Church. I grew up with a family that, that does the exact same things that I do now, and their experience of me working with them was John is not cut out to be outside. I remember going over the bridge in Glenwood with my older brother who never shies from the truth when he speaks with me, looking at me and saying, John, whatever you do, get yourself a 68-degree office and stay in there because you're not cut to be outside. And I remember knowing that God called me to New Creation Church and that I was not to go to Bible school. I was supposed to be here and learn and maintaining working here. And the second year of working here, going to dinner with the young adults and Pastor Jonathan was there, and he said, you know, I was talking to my dad, and he said that your one job this year is just going to be all day pulling weeds outside in the rocks. <laughs> and I just thought, is there a way out? Is there a way out? Is there a way out? Thank God that I didn't get out. You know what one of the main things is? We think of overcoming our comfortability. Like, John, like you went to Africa and hiked the tallest mountain. No, one of the most uncomfortable things you can do is stay where God's called you and endure things and see the promise. So many of us are trying to leave uncomfortable situations when God's telling us to persevere and see the victory on the other side of it. But in that process of learning how to work outside and do things, I've had a couple moments here at this church. I'll name the first one. This is in chronological order. We had an awesome youth event. It was my, one of my first youth events to have. It was a lock-in. We had 92 students. <clears throat> it's the most we've ever had at a lock-in. And I felt really good about it, but I had zero sleep. And we're putting stuff away, and we're, we're moving everything. And I'm just walking through my day like, man, that was a good event. John, you killed it. And, uh, you know, I get to play guitar. Somebody asked me to play guitar in their wedding. They're having a wedding rehearsal, and I play guitar. And I'm still feeling kind of good. People are taking my picture. Jonathan's taking my picture. It's in, a, it's in a hangar with all these airplanes. And I'm, like, trying to look cool. And suddenly somebody says, did you hear what happened at the church? And I go, no. I said, we walked in, and there was a fire underneath the stage. We smelt this smell. We smelt this burning. And we're like, where's this burning coming from? They literally opened this door right here and saw an amplifier on fire under the stage. And immediately, I flushed white. And I remember being in there, turning on a halogen lamp right next to David's amplifier and closing it all up. And I showed up 
Later, I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to get to the church. I show up, every door is open, they have massive fans. Phil Fetchick is here with air freshener, just going, and I walk right up to Pastor Mark, and he opens his arms and gives me a big hug. And for weeks, Pastor Mark had to announce, I'm sorry that it smells like a cigar box here at the church. And I'll tell you, I wanted, you remember those old Southwest commercials? Want to get away fast? I felt like I was in one of those commercials. <clears throat> okay, that's screw up number one. Let's fast forward a little time. We're building the preschool. We're building the preschool. And have you ever seen somebody put in a leech field for a big commercial building? It's amazing. This thing is huge. How big was that? Like 100 feet by 60, or was it even bigger than that? Way bigger than that, Pastor Zane. I'm trying to limit my mistake. Uh, probably shouldn't do that. So about, probably about four feet deep, three feet deep. Massive square in the ground, huge infiltrators there, and it's right next to one of our irrigation lines. And I'm like, you know, I'm an irrigation guy. I don't care that construction's going on here. I'm going to maintain this thing. Show up one morning, and all three feet of that, I mean, is filled with water, and it's overflowing in the hill. I had flooded with tens of thousands of gallons of water, that whole infiltrator field. And I'm just pacing, oh my gosh, oh no, 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 this didn't happen. This didn't happen. So we wait a whole week, it dries out. I show up one morning early to pray. I, I was, that looks a little weird on the hill. I walk up the hill. I had done the same thing and flooded it a second time. Another tens of thousands of dollars. I don't want to say. Let's not go there. Tons of water just flooding from the hill. People are like, what is John doing? And I just wanted to get away fast. I wanted to quit. I tell people, I should have been fired. They go, no, John, you're so great. You're so amazing. I said, no. Then I tell them those stories like, yeah, you really should have been fired. But look back at this verse in Proverbs 24, 16. A righteous man may fall seven times, but the wicked shall fall by destruction. Both sides are falling. The only difference is the response to the falling. My failures won't define me. My response to my failures will. And I realized I screwed up here, but I want to let you know none of you have defined me by those two mistakes. Because I decided I'm not leaving when it's uncomfortable. I will get back up. So I encourage you, don't be defined by your failure. Be defined by your response to your failure. The last thing I got out of this story was don't trust the crowd. You know, we live in a constitutional republic. We don't live in a democracy, but we have democratic principles here. And we love to get data analytics. We love to see what the majority says. And I'm here to tell you that the majority is not always right. Think of Joshua Chamberlain. All of his men are like, oh, so Joshua, we're turning around, right? There's no way we can take on these 400. Look, the Texas regiment's coming up the hill with them. We hardly beat them last time. We're out of ammo. We... All Joshua Chamberlain knew was the word of his leader, and that spoke more than any of the words of the people around him. So this is a time to really look inside of us and consider some things. Look at this, Proverbs 14, 12. Give you some time to turn there. It says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Let's go to Matthew 7, 13 through 14. says this, enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. We could say the majority go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. You know, we live in a kingdom. Like, no, we live in a constitutional republic. Yes, let's elevate our perspective a little higher, kingdom of God. We live in a kingdom. And in a kingdom, the king rules, not the majority. We can't be so caught up with what the majority say and do that we act like them. No, this is a perfect time to think about that. How are the majority acting in this time in our country? You know, I, I was one of those people like, oh, those toilet paper hoarders and those people who are hoarding cans. What's going on? What, what's going on? And I remember I just showed up to City Market and I walk in and, you know, I just see everybody and they're just grabbing stuff and tomato sauce and spaghetti. And I go in the aisle and I'm just start like, and God's like, what are you doing? You literally were just saying you weren't going to be like them. And then you get in a scenario and you start acting like them. We have to take this conscious effort to go. Praise God, he sanctified us. And if we understand what sanctification is, it's taking us from where we are into a different place. If we're always going, well, what are they saying over here? And we want to be like them. We will never lead the majority if we act like them. So I want to end with this, and it goes back to our story. Maybe you've heard recently from Pastor Mark or leaders talking about how when there were the plagues in Egypt, there was an area called Goshen, and that's where the Israelites lived, and they were protected. There was a protection over God's people because God wanted to separate his people from the people of the world. And there's a story even continuing about Joshua Chamberlain about that, about the protection. See, after Joshua Chamberlain fought the battle of Gettysburg, he continued to finish the war, had some amazing stories. You can research his life. Actually, when Robert Gen- General E. Lee handed over the white flag, he handed it, not to President Abraham Lincoln, he handed it to Joshua Chamberlain because of his actions on a little roundhop that day. But he went on, and he became the governor of Maine, and he served four terms. And during the third term, he got this little letter that said, you really should look at this, sir. And he opened it up, and I'm going to read it to you. It was, from, it was from a soldier of the 15th Alabama, the people that were fighting him that day. And read what it says. Listen, I'll read it. Dear sir, I want to tell you of a little passage in the Battle of Round Top, Gettysburg, concerning you and me, which I am now glad of. Twice in that fight, I had your life in my hands. I got a safe place between two big rocks and drew bead fair and square on you. You were standing in the open, behind the center of your line, full exposed. I knew your rank by your uniform and your actions, and I thought it a mighty good thing to put you out of the way. I rested my gun on the rock and took steady aim. I started to pull the trigger, but some notion stopped me. Then I got ashamed of my weakness and went through the same motions again. I had you, perfectly certain, but that same something shut right down on me. I couldn't pull the trigger. Gave it up. That is your life. I'm glad of it now and hope you are yours truly. If we'll accept it, there is a covenant of protection for us in this time. And that covenant of protection can inspire confidence within us to act differently when we go into city market, when we go into subway. Maybe you've been asked these questions. So what do you think of the coronavirus? 
I wish I could ask you if you've been asked that. I'm sure some of you have been asked that. What are you going to say? I recommend right now in this time determining within yourself what you're going to say so you can be prepared. I'll tell you what I said. I said, I'm good. Jesus is my healer. I know him. It's going to be good. Well, that's, just, that's a little bold, John. Fine. It may be bold. But what are you going to say? Determine in your heart what you're going to say to those people. Because if you've learned anything, even what we say to somebody can have the biggest impact in the world. We don't get to determine the size of impact that it might even have. You know, I had a hard time comparing myself to Pastor Jonathan for a long time. And I'm telling you what, not only do I compare myself to him, a lot of you, even you on the camera, compare us. You even call me Jonathan sometimes. I'm not Jonathan, I'm John, and I'm not offended by that. But I'll, there'll be times where Pastor Jonathan won't be able to drum, and there's no drummer, and they look at me like, John, you can drum. I'm like, no, I can't drum. I don't drum. People try to compare us, and I remember, I would try to act like Jonathan, and I would do a terrible job of it. But I remember going inside of my heart and going, what can I bring to the table? Well, I can connect with people really well. I've got an attitude of joy and encouragement on my heart. I can do that with all that I am and be all that I can be and believe it's enough. So I started determining every time I'd walk through those doors, I would have an attitude of joy. And I will tell you, people have taken me out to dinner saying, you didn't know what has gone on in my life, but just the way you responded greatly impacted my life. I just, a couple months ago, had a conversation with a lady. Went up, didn't know what I was doing, just asked a certain question. Hey, so what's going on? She said, oh, I'm moving. I'm saying, why are you moving? Two weeks later, she comes up to me and said, do you know you're my, like, you're my guardian angel? And I'm like, well, that's not doctrinally right, but okay. She said, I was set on leaving. I was leaving this church. I was leaving Colorado. I couldn't figure out a way. Just you asking me and challenging me on that, I'm staying. I talked to somebody. I'm able to stay. Who knows who she's going to talk to and who she's going to affect? I don't know what you bring to the table, but I ask you, bring it to the table. And don't only bring it in here. I know I'm a church guy. I'm passionate about New Creation Church. It's pretty much all that I do. But what works in here works much better out there. And right now, the world needs it. They need some Joshua Chamberlains out there right now. So I'll finish with saying this. The truth of the matter is that not only Joshua changes the world, but we all do. Some of us with our action, some of us with our inaction. Determine in your heart to not let uncomfortability to keep you from moving. When opposition comes, don't stop. And if ever, by some chance, you find yourself falling down, get back up. And don't trust the crowd. Trust God, and I will tell you that you and I will do much more than any butterfly ever did. It's time to flap our wings. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, for your testimony, for the laws that you set in this earth to give your people purpose and power. And Father God, we determine in this moment to operate by those laws so that we can influence and transform this world that you've called us to. Father God, I thank you that it's not by my might, it's not by their might, it's not by my power, it's not by their power, but it's by your spirit. Father God, I thank you we would empty out our potential. We would work with you as co-laborers. We would fulfill the call of God that you put on this church, and we would see your promises, and we would experience your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. It was awesome being with you guys today.